Hi, welcome to the New Story Church podcast. We hope that this week's message encourages you and brings you closer to Jesus. Right, I know I say that every week, but I genuinely mean it. Thank you for being here today. We are starting, so if it's your first week here, we are starting a brand new series. You're here on the perfect week. This series is called Wrecking Room, and we're going to be talking about something called deconstruction. Um, but before I get into that, I want to share with you why I feel we needed to have this series. I've been going back and forth in my mind for about two years now of if we were to talk about deconstruction in church, what would it look like and how would we handle that? And I was thinking about it and then I realized that we needed to have this discussion about a year ago. I was at a meeting with a group of pastors and one of the pastors spoke up and said, hey, can we talk about something that, uh, you know, is not COVID related, but maybe people are dealing with because I think he was just tired of talking about COVID. And, uh, what could we talk about? And so some pastors, they started giving out these different ideas of what, what could we discuss? What, what, you know, and they were giving out these different ideas. And, and then I don't normally talk at these meetings. And uh, I thought, you know what? I'm going to finally contribute. I'm going to say something. And I know it's hard to believe that I don't talk, but I usually don't talk at these meetings. And I said, guys, we should talk about deconstruction. And I was in a room with about seven or eight pastors, and I was met with some blank stares, and one pastor just rolled his eyes. And then one pastor finally said, well, what is deconstruction? And then the gentleman who rolled his eyes said, hey, Scott, why don't you explain to them what deconstruction is? And I thought, oh, this is going to be interesting. One, I don't normally talk at these meetings. And two, I've never been asked to define deconstruction before. And so I start basically rambling for like two minutes of, you know, this. And then the gentleman who rolled his eyes and asked me to explain it, he just interrupted me and said, guys, here's what you need to know. Deconstruction is just a bunch of people, it's a movement of people who want to just discredit and disbelieve everything the church has believed for 2,000 years. And I was like, oh gosh, that is, that is just a horrible generalization. And I didn't speak up, and then because everyone in the group started talking, they're like, oh yeah, we've been through this before, and people, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I just, I remember leaving thinking, should I have said something? Should I have said more? I remember just being really discouraged by the atmosphere that was created when we started having this conversation about deconstruction. Now, some of you still have the question, what even is deconstruction? Why are you talking about this right now? Well, before I tell you what deconstruction is, I want to give you a few kind of uh, disclaimers or parameters for this series. And the first one is this. For those of you who come here all the time, you notice that I'm sitting right now. I almost never sit. I've sat on the front of the stage before, but I am sitting this week and next week for this series because I want to make sure that whatever I say, I say it clearly and calmly to the best of my abilities. Some of you are like, you don't speak calmly. I'm doing what I can right now. Uh, and so for them, some of you are saying, if you're going to speak more clearly and calmly, I wish you would just sit every single week. Well, I, you know, I, I'm not doing that either. But I'm going to try to speak clearly and calmly. So I'm sitting this week and next week. So if you don't like me sitting, guess what? It'll be done in just two weeks. We'll get through this together. It'll be good. But that's why I'm sitting. Uh, second disclaimer for this series. When I use the terms conservative and liberal, I'm speaking theologically, not politically. Now, I understand that sometimes those two things overlap, but I'm primarily speaking theologically, which means no views of God and Christianity. I'm speaking conservatively and liberally in regards to theology, not 
politics. Also within that particular disclaimer, there are going to be times in this series where for some of you, I'm a little bit too conservative theologically, and for some of you, I'm a little bit too liberal theologically. That's the beautiful thing about being at this place called the church. We can all listen and learn and grow together, and we're not always all going to agree on everything all the time. Also within that particular disclaimer, this one has like a bunch of bullets under it. Um, When I quote someone in this series, I'm going to quote a number of different people, a number of different podcasts and books and resources in this series. I am not going to stop before each person and say, Now, I don't agree with everything this person says, but in this particular, they were, they were pretty helpful. I know we as pastors, we love to let everybody know that we don't agree with everything that someone says. I do not have time to do that in this series. Uh, we're going to keep moving. Here is just a really safe assumption that you can carry with you from here on out. This is just a really great assumption. Whenever I quote somebody on stage, just assume that I don't agree with everything that they have to say. Just assume that. That's a really safe assumption. A fact, if if you ever find yourself at a spot where you're like, I agree with this person all the time, 10 out of 10 times, 100% of the time, that's probably not a good thing. You're probably not thinking then. It's good to have a little bit of disagreement. So so just assume from here on out, whenever we're in a series, if I quote someone, I may not agree with 100% of the things that they say. In fact, I probably don't. But that's okay because I'm not the be-all, end-all. Next. I am not going to tie up every loose end in this series. This is not an apologetic series. This is not me giving defenses of the Christian faith and history and science and all that stuff. There are times and places for that, and there are people who are really good at that. And you know what? I, quite frankly, I don't like to talk about science. I'm not a scientist, so I'm not going to pretend to be one. I have a master's degree in theology and a bachelor's degree in biblical studies, so I'm not going to try to be an expert in something that I'm not an expert in. So I'm not going to do that. We're not going to tie up every loose end. So I might make a statement in this series that causes a little bit of tension for you. (laughs) Guess what? You can go look into that. You can read about it. You can email me about it. Scott Lackey at NewStoryBuffalo.com. Hey, could you bring some greater clarity to this? We can talk about it. It's great, but I don't have time to tie up every single loose end in this series. Sometimes it's okay to just let the tension rest and wrestle with it a little bit. Next, I want to give you an outline for this series. So here's what we're doing. In week one, we're going to be talking about what is deconstruction. That's what we're doing this week. What is deconstruction? Week two, we are going to be discussing why have people went on this path of deconstruction? What caused this to happen? Week three, we're going to be talking about something called reconstruction. And I know that we're, you know, some in the deconstruction community don't love the term reconstruction. I would ask that you please just hear me out on it. Um, it I, I believe that there's some valuable things to consider within that as well. In week four, I don't really know where we're going. Maybe, maybe we'll end the series then. I don't know. Maybe we'll keep going. Maybe something will come up. I don't know where we're going week four. But week one, what is deconstruction? Week two, why are people deconstructing? Week three is going to be reconstruction. Week four, We'll see when we get there. We will see what happens. And then lastly, I want to be very clear. Here is my goal for this series. I want to let you know clearly where I'm going and what my goal is. Here it is. My goal is to initiate a conversation amongst differing views and generations that could lead to understanding and healing. That's my goal. It's to initiate a conversation amongst differing views and generations that could lead to understanding and healing. Because here's where a lot of the tension comes into play. The majority of people who find themselves in this group of people who are deconstructing are typically millennials and Gen Z. Now, that's not always the case. There's some boomers and Gen Xers who are deconstructing. But typically speaking, they're millennials and Gen Z. And those who are not deconstructing find themselves in the boomer and Gen X pool. 
and boomer. And that what has happened is, is there's become this great divide within the church and even with outside of the church and with worldview in general between millennials and Gen Z and in Gen X and baby boomers. And my goal is to initiate a conversation where we can learn to understand one another and work towards healing. I know people who are in the process of deconstructing their faith and they feel as if they cannot have an honest conversation with their family and their closest friends about it. That's not acceptable, especially if we're within the church and we're claimed to be people with grace and forgiveness and all these wonderful things and, and people feel as if they can't talk to us honestly about what they're going through. So my goal is to initiate a conversation of healing and understanding amongst differing views and generations because the divide that has occurred, it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. So this brings up a good question. What is deconstruction? Some of you are like, yeah, you just spent eight minutes. What, is, what are you even talking about right now? I don't even know what you're talking about. You spent eight minutes setting this whole thing up. What is deconstruction? Well, I have three different definitions of deconstruction that we're going to look at. One is from the Deconstruction Network, which is a really helpful website on deconstruction, and, the and it's ran by a movement of people who are deconstructing their faith. One is from a friend of mine, and one is my own definition of deconstruction, because I should let you know where I'm coming from on this. So the first one is from this website, the Deconstruction Network, which is uh, kind of ran by this guy named Phil Drysdale, who's a leader in the deconstruction movement. And I figured if we're going to talk about this, we should allow those who are in this group to speak for themselves. We should show them some respect. And so here's how he would define, or how the website defines deconstruction. Deconstruction is the process of questioning one's core foundational beliefs and finding that since they don't hold to be true, they need to be removed. What is a foundational truth for one person might be an insignificant point for another. Because of this one person's harrowing, complex deconstruction of their faith might be another person's bump in the road. Generally speaking, most who deconstruct at a significant level will experience a lot of accompanying pain and suffering. They go through grief as they experience the loss of all sorts of things, ranging from their God, faith, family, friends, relationships, and even their own identity. I want us to focus on that last part for just a moment. As people go through this process of deconstruction and questioning maybe the faith or the Christian culture that they were raised with, it co comes with it a process of grief, of pain. And we're, we're going to talk more about that in a moment, but in podcasts that I've listened to, like You Have Permission with Dan Koch, or books that I've read like Religious Refugees, you can hear that this is not a process that people are like, oh, I can't wait to deconstruct my faith. As we're going to talk about next week, typically something happened that caused for this process to happen. Uh, a second definition of deconstruction is from my friend uh, David Limbaugh. He's a PhD. He's a philosopher. He, says, he refers to deconstruction as a methodological skepticism where you take a look at your beliefs in search of a foundation. It's really helpful. It's a, it's a methodological skepticism. You're taking a look at the beliefs that you had, the beliefs you were raised with, the beliefs that were passed down to you, and you begin to look at them skeptically in search of a foundation, maybe at times in search of a different foundation or a better foundation or a new foundation. It's breaking down what you once had and looking at things in a new or different way. And then lastly, this is my definition of deconstruction. It's a process. Notice the word process. This doesn't happen overnight. This can, have, this can be a longer process for some than others. For some, deconstruction can be a few months, some a few years. It's a process of dissecting and investigating. So it's dissecting, you're pulling it apart and investigating the Christian culture you were raised with. 
It's dissecting and investigating the Christian culture you were raised with. It's pulling it apart. And you know what? We should celebrate this because we told an entire generation, own your faith, make your faith your own. And now they're trying to do that and people are getting upset with them for it. Making your faith your own should not be a game of Simon Says. Hey, just take whatever I gave you and go on with it. And you can ask questions as long as they're the right questions. No, it's a process of dissecting and investigating the Christian culture you were raised with. And secondly, this process becomes necessary when your real life experience is not lining up with the faith that was given to you. So we're going to talk about that second statement more next week. This process becomes necessary when what you were given is not lining up with the real life experience that you're currently in. It's a process that many people are going through. In fact, according to Deconstruction Network, 2,700 people leave the American church every day. 2,700 people leave the American church every day. Yet 78% of them still have an interest in faith. If that's the case, why do they feel as if the church is not a place where they can process their faith and investigate and dissect and ask questions? Which brings us to our next question. Why does this matter? Why are we talking about this? Because people are deconstructing and people matter. And since people matter, we are going to discuss this. People matter to God, so people matter to us. So we are going to have this discussion. We are going to break this apart. And in fact, there are people who call New Story Church home who are currently deconstructing their faith. There are people who call New Story Church home who you know somebody who is deconstructing their faith. Or you might in one day be in a process of deconstruction. Or maybe you just find this message online one day and you're like, I'm going through deconstruction. I don't know who you are or where you're from. Maybe you don't even call this church home, but you're hey, I'm interested in this conversation. I don't know. But all I know is that people are deconstructing their faith and people matter. So we're going to have this discussion. And look at this other statistic from the Deconstruction Network. Only 31% of deconstructing Christians felt that they could be somewhat or completely open about their beliefs in church. 68% felt they had to hide their beliefs in one way or another. If I'm to be honest with you, I'm shocked that that second number is not higher. They feel as if they can't be honest about what they're wrestling with. They feel as if they can't be honest about what it is that they're going through. 68%. And it's interesting to me that that's the case when you consider the example of Jesus himself. When he was hanging on the cross, he screams out to God, his father, this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If Christ himself and Christ is our example, questions the presence of the almighty God, the creator of all things, his father, if he can question that, then why have we allowed some questions to become taboo or unacceptable? If Jesus himself set that as an example, why have we allowed that to be the case? And I know what some of you might be thinking. Some of you might be thinking, oh, those darn millennials, those Gen Z, they just want to run from truth. They just don't want to hear the truth. They're the snowflake generation. And so they come in questions and we give them the truth and we give it to them good. And I'm tired of those, that snowflake generation. I've said this before and I will say it time and time again. Nobody... Nobody, nobody, nobody likes to be criticized. Nobody likes getting, nobody wants to get up in the morning and say, I can't wait to be criticized today. It's going to feel so good. Nobody likes being criticized. And all of us, because of that, can be a little bit overly sensitive and defensive at times. I'm a millennial. I'm 28 years old. I can be overly sensitive and defensive at times. Sign me up. I'll let you know about it. But guess what? Baby boomers and Gen X, you can be as well. 
You referring to a generation as the snowflake generation or whatever name you want to give them is you being sensitive and defensive. It's you saying, I do not want to invest. I do not want to listen. I'm not concerned with what they want to have, have to say. So what I'm going to do is I am going to name call because what they have to say might be a critique of me and I'm really sensitive about that and I don't want to hear it. So let's just be honest. This oversensitivity and this not wanting to be critiqued, it can go both ways, on both ends. We can all get better at that. Secondly, some of you might be saying, we should not be having this discussion because people who are deconstructing, they're just trying to destroy the church. They're trying to get in there and destroy the church. Now, if you went and talked to a bunch of people who are deconstructing, I'm sure that you could find a little segment or fringe group of people who are trying to destroy that. You could go find, you know, because there's fringe people in every single group. French people in every single group. So I'm sure if you really went to find that person, you go find them. Or you could find your YouTube clip or TikTok video of someone. You know, you could find whatever you're looking for. But overall, generally speaking, as we're going to talk about next week, those who go on this path of deconstruction oftentimes did not ask for this. Something happened that caused this to happen. And it's not something that they were like, oh, I can't wait to be at a spot where I lose my friends and family and, and, you know, everyone's questioning me all the time and thinks I've gone off the deep end. I can't wait to do that. It's typically a process that involves grieving and pain and confusion and, and just wondering what exactly is going on right now. So we have to be willing, and I'm going to talk about this more, be willing to listen. But I would also be willing to make the case that Jesus himself advocated for a form of deconstruction. When Jesus stepped onto the pages of human history 2,000 years ago, he, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he gave this beautiful message called the Sermon on the Mount. It's his longest message in all the scriptures. And in Matthew 5, he makes this one statement over and over again. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. What is that? That's deconstruction. You have heard this said. You had this belief. You built things on this foundation. But I say to you something different. There's something new. There's a different foundation. There's a different way of looking at things. So if Jesus himself was processing and going, hey, hey, I've said it to you, but hey, this is what we're going to do now. If Jesus himself was deconstructing in a sense, maybe we should consider every once in a while that this is a good thing to do. I wonder if maybe, I, I mean, I wonder if this is entirely possible. If a movement that was started 2,000 years ago by Christ, if the movement that was started 2,000 years ago, I wonder, I mean, maybe, if it's entirely possible, if over a 2,000-year period, maybe some things got lost in translation. Maybe it's entirely possible that we added some things to it that don't need to be there sometimes. I wonder if it's entirely possible that we've allowed some of our own religion or some of our own preferences to get added on to it that don't need to be there. I wonder if there are times where we need to say to ourselves, hey, what exactly was Jesus doing in the first century? What would his audience have thought? What exactly was happening? What exactly was going on? And maybe we've added some things to it. Maybe there are times where we need to evaluate and look. Sometimes that's okay. And I want to go to one of Jesus' most powerful, and maybe his most powerful, you have heard it said, but I say unto you statements. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, verses 43 to 44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
I know that the word enemy might feel a little bit strong here, but the hostility that we've allowed to arise and come up between generations and between differing views, we do at times treat one another like an enemy. And I wonder if Jesus was here today, if he was making this statement, if instead of saying, I heard, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, if he would say something like this, you have heard it said, love those in your tribe. You've heard it said, love those in your group. You've heard it said, love those in your political party. You've heard it said, love those in your denomination. You have heard it said, love those who think like you and act like you and sound like you. You've heard it said, love those in your echo chamber. But I say unto you, love those outside of your tribe. Love those outside of your group. Love those outside of your denomination. Love those outside of your party. Love those who don't always look like you, think like you, and act like you. Love those who are not within your echo chamber. I wonder if that's what the words of Jesus would sound like today. And if we really allowed those words to transform the way we see the world and see other people, if we could begin to move forward in healing together and understanding together. To stop putting up walls where they don't need to be and saying, I'm going to learn to love others the way Christ has demonstrated love for every one of us. There was a, well, I've never personally been in a, a crisis of deconstruction per se, and I wouldn't even call it a crisis, but while I've never been on a, that was the wrong word, while I've never been in a process of deconstruction, I have had moments that you would maybe call a crisis of faith within my life. One of them I wrote about in my book in chapter three, and I've talked about it here from stage uh, before, but there have been other moments in my life where I've questioned things and been wondering and searching. And one of the first times I can remember this, and some of you this is going to seem so insignificant, but it, it, it marked me. I was a junior in high school, and you know I was doing the good Christian thing. I was taking my Bible to school, looking to make arguments with my biology teacher because that's what I was told to do. You know, I mean, that's what you're supposed to do. This person, you know, signed up to do their job, and they're teaching a curriculum that they were asked to teach. But I should just be a jerk and interrupt them anyway. So that's what I was I was doing, and and uh, I was doing the right thing. And I remember my teacher said, he said, "Why don't you read this book?" He had a book that he wanted me to read, and I can't remember the name of it. I was looking for it all week, and I just I can't remember it. But it was a book about the Bible. And I remember reading this book, and I had read everything. I, I'd read all of Evidence It Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell, that big, thick book. I'd read all the Lee Strobel books. I was reading William Lane Craig and Ravi Zacharias. So I, I had read a lot of the, the resources that were out there. But within this book, the author had a high view of the scriptures, but he also had some questions and some interesting insights that I'd never heard before. And I remember starting to think to myself, where can I find some of the answers? How can I reconcile some of this? And I wasn't really going to church at the time, but I was involved with a certain Christian group. It's where I had a job and everything. And it was, it was an interesting experience to say the least. But I remember thinking to myself, I cannot go to this group with the questions that I have. Because currently within this group, I'm respected. I have dignity. People like me. I'm accepted. And if I go to this group and start asking some of the questions that I have, I'll instantly be labeled as falling away, as a rebel, as going down a dark path. And I'll no longer have the respect that I once had in this group. I'll no longer be seen the same way, and I didn't want to risk that acceptance as a teenager. I didn't want to risk that. And so what I ended up doing is I went to the leader of this group, and I said, hey, uh, I, you know, 
I have a friend who has some serious questions and I don't, I don't know what to do about them. <laughs> and, I, and, 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 you know, it's kind of funny to think about, but when you think about this in context, what kind of culture was created where I was better off to lie about my struggles than I was to be honest about them? And have we been guilty of that before? Where we've created space where it's better off for somebody to be dishonest than it is for them to be honest. Because you know what? Quite frankly, I didn't want to be the subject of gossip. I mean, prayer meeting. You know, I, I, I didn't want to be the subject of that. I still wanted to be accepted. I wanted to be in the group. And so what would it look like if we as the church started creating an environment where people are willing to say, you know what? I have some questions. I have some things that I'm going through. I'm not 100% sure about that. I don't, I, I, I don't know. And, and what would it look like if we allowed people to be honest? And then at 68%, hey, we may not always you know, land in the same spot all the time, but we want to have an honest conversation with you. Imagine this with me for just a moment. Maybe some of you need to close your eyes for this. But imagine a loved one comes to you, a friend, a family member, and they make one of the following statements to you. And I want you to imagine how you would react if they make one of these statements to you. Just, just think about this. And like I said, some of you maybe close your eyes, some of you maybe don't need to, but, but just think about this. If somebody were to come to you and say, hey, I have a lot of issues with some of the things in the Bible and I don't fully get it or understand it. And some of the stuff that God does in the Old Testament seems a little strange to me and I just don't know how I feel about the Bible anymore. Or imagine somebody comes to you and says, oh, that whole thing with hell and eternal conscious torment, it seems just a little extreme to me. It seems a little inhumane. I, I, I don't know how I feel about that. Or imagine somebody comes to you and says, uh, you know, some of the teachings in the church about marriage and sexuality, you know, I, I went and met some people or I'm going through something or I know, you know, I think some of that stuff seems a little dated or a little bit out of touch. I, I just don't know what to do. Or imagine somebody comes to you and says, I'm done with church because in my life, the church seems to have brought me more harm than it has help or hope or anything like that. I'm not saying those are the only statements someone could make who's deconstructing or beginning that process. But if, as you're imagining this scenario, and maybe a loved one has said one of those things to you before or something like it, or maybe, I don't, I just, but what is your reaction? Are you feeling uneasy? What are you, what are you feeling? What are you processing? How would you respond if somebody made one of those statements to you or something like it? Does your response look like Jesus? Does your response look like the Jesus who lived three years with these 12 disciples that he was leading along and none of them even believed who he was until after he came back from the dead? Yet he still called them disciple. He still called them friend. They all abandoned him. Yet he still had great patience with them and served them. One of them even ended up betraying him. Yet he still washed his feet. Does your response look like him? Does your response look like the Jesus who has shown you great grace and forgiveness and understanding and mercy? Does my response look like him? Or as I said, does your response look like your favorite pundit? They're like, oh, I'm going to get the edge on this argument. I'm going I'm to get him on this one. 
I got a question for him, but it's not really a question. It's a statement. I'm going to stump him. Your response in that moment is critical. How you respond to somebody in that moment is critical. Because I'm not going to be all heavy-handed, you know, the old school, you know, you could be determining whether someone goes to heaven or hell. Now, that's really extreme as well. That's just way, way too far. But how you respond could determine whether that person chooses to process what they're going through with a community of faith or apart from one. Your response could determine whether they're saying, I am going to think through these things with a church or without a church. And the church should no longer be the space where 68% of people who are deconstructing feel as if they can't be open and honest. The church should be a space where people can question and explore. Because oftentimes a question about a belief or a doctrine is a search and an exploration for identity as well. There's something deeper going on there. And the church should be a space, just as Jesus was constantly asking questions or teaching through parables so that he would stimulate thought, not just to mandate thought. We should be a space where people feel as if they can process and learn and grow and not just assume, oh, that, you know, you're just not reading Bible enough. Or, hey, just go read this book. That's an easy thing to do, to just sh- shove a book at somebody and then not spend time investing and listening. We have a responsibility to live life with people just as Christ did, to listen to people just as Christ did. I'm not saying, oh, you're compromising. No, I'm not saying that compromise. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. We all have convictions. We all have things we stand by. But does our response look more like Christ or does it look like someone who's just trying to get an edge over another person? To love those who see things differently than us sometimes. So I have four takeaways from, for us. The first takeaway is for those who are in the church, you're not deconstructing. Maybe you don't even know someone who is, but maybe you do know somebody who is. Here's the first thing. And I say that I've said this in a lot of messages, but it's so important. It's something that I need to get better at as well. But it's this, learn to listen. Learn to listen. We have to learn to listen. Don't be judgmental. Don't be opinionated. Don't always be trying to just get the edge in. Learn to genuinely listen. So many of us were really good at listening to respond. We are thinking of our argument as somebody is talking to us instead of really listening to what it is that they have to say. We have to learn to listen. And when somebody shares something with you, don't go and gossip about it. Gossip takes a safe conversation and turns it into a toxic one. It's time that we see those who are deconstructing as people who have honest questions, who are brothers and sisters in Christ, who are trying to learn, who are trying to grow, who are maybe sometimes even trying to heal. And we have a responsibility to listen. Look at what James, the brother of Jesus says in James chapter one, verse 19. He says, this, you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger. He doesn't say, be quick to speak. I mean, quick to hear. He doesn't say, be be quick to speak. He says, be quick to hear. He doesn't say, be quick to speak. He says, be quick to hear. Let's start becoming the people who actually listen, who actually think, hey, you know what? I might not know where this person's coming from. I might not know a book that has all the answers. I might not, but you know what? Here's what I do know. I am going to walk through life with you. I am going to invest. I am going to listen no matter the cost. I am going to grow with you. 
we're going to be quick to listen. When we, when we get to a spot where we are no longer quick to listen and we are just really quick to speak, what happens is, is we stop viewing people as people and we view them as a project. Or we view them as a product that we're trying to shape into our own thing. People are not projects. People are people. And all people have been created in the image of God and deserve dignity and respect. And because of that, we should be the people who are quick to listen, to grow together and say, hey, I don't know where this journey is going to take us, but I'm going to go on it with you and I'm going to invest and I'm going to listen because that's what Christ has done for me. Secondly, if you are deconstructing, I've been a process of deconstruction, this is my takeaway point for you. Don't become what you rebelled against. Don't become what you rebelled against. Because for, for many who have deconstructed, what begins this process in some ways, not all cases, but what even adds to this process is you felt as if you had some honest questions, some real questions, or maybe some exploration that you were going on, and you went to somebody or you felt you couldn't go to somebody because you felt that who you were going to was a self-righteous person who would just assume that they had all the answers and you couldn't have a conversation with. And you know, I can't go to this person, I can't go to this group because they're just know-it-alls. And they will just assume everything and you know what? I don't want to be around people who are self-righteous. I'm going on an exploration of discovering and journeying to find faith again. But what I've noticed is some people, as they begin to go on this movement, you start to become what you rebelled against, where you have liberal concepts and ideas and something is happening, that new creation is now here, that new life is available to each and every one of us, and that in Jesus, we've been invited into that new creation and new life something has happened in his resurrection, something is happening, that there's always a story available for us of resurrection, renewal, and revival that is in the air in Christ Jesus. And so my prayer is, is that we would move towards this goal of healing and understanding that we would discover together in Christ that we don't have to be the people who always carry around with us all of the right answers. But instead, we would become the people that in the kingdom of God, we would carry with us the message of life and life abundantly.